I have. And it's climate change is here um, and it's impacting the health of my patients today. And it's actually impacting my ability to be able to provide care as a physician um, within my healthcare systems. The BMJ, alongside the Harvard Global Health Institute, has launched a series of articles exploring how to achieve effective universal health coverage. The collection highlights the importance of quality, uh, some potential finance models, how to incentivize stakeholders, and some of the barriers to true UHC. One of those barriers, and it's a big one, is climate change. Patterns of disease will change, both communicable and non-communicable. Cataclysmic weather will disrupt systems, and the economic impact is going to challenge our ability to pay for healthcare. But even against that backdrop, our two guests today aren't totally pessimistic. They think that good planning and political will could see both carbon mitigation and expanded healthcare go hand in hand. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined in the studio by Ashish Jha and on the line by Renny Salas. And they're both authors of one of the articles in the collection I just talked about. Ashish, if I could get you to introduce yourself, please. Sure. My name is Ashish Jha. I'm a physician and I'm a professor uh, at Harvard University. Renny, can I ask you to introduce yourself, please? Yes, of course. Um, it's an honor to be here. Uh, my name is Renee Salas, and I'm an emergency medicine physician um, here at Harvard Medical School in Massachusetts General Hospital and affiliated faculty at the Harvard Global Health Institute. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you both for, for writing um, this analysis. It was really fascinating um, because I think for so long we, we've known that climate change is a big issue of our time. Um, and we've known that universal health coverage is a big issue of our time. And obviously, they're going to be connected. But what you've done in this paper is really try and state, uh, analyse some of what that interconnectedness would be. Um, the primaries are happening in the US at the moment. And you can see that there's sort of two policy platforms that are, are dominating our climate change and uh, Medicare yeah. or uh, health coverage. Um, and I just wonder, you know, do you think it's time now that we start really thinking about these these together in a much more kind of coherent way? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So these are the two big global health policy issues of our times. I mean, they're certainly showing up in the U.S. Um, even in countries that have universal health coverage, there's a lot of pressure on those health systems to make sure that the care remains high quality and accessible. Uh, and then for much of the world, there are important investments going into universal health coverage. And it struck us, and I'll speak for Renee for a second on this as we discussed it, um, that it was really striking that nobody had put these two phenomena together in quite this direct a way. And part of it is um, it's been surprising to me how long it's taken people to understand that the biggest effect of climate change is going to be on our health. I mean, yes, sea levels will rise, temperatures will be warmer, and uh, sure, all of that. But where we will feel it in our lives is in the health of our children, in our own personal health, health of older people. Um, and so if that's the big effect, then it is not a huge leap to then start thinking about, oh, 
it has all sorts of implications for universal health coverage because universal health coverage, of course, is about figuring out how to manage people's health and promote health and, and, and financially protect them when they get sick. Mm. And Rene, uh, you know, we, we have already started seeing some of the impacts potentially of climate change on our health in the UK this year. Uh, for I don't know how many years running, the the, the hottest temperature um, on record was recorded, uh, and that has a direct uh, effect on you know people's health, cardiovascular disease. We see people ending up in hospital. Now you're an emergency medicine physician. Have you uh, have you started noticing this in your practice yet at all? I have, and it's climate change is here, um, and it's impacting the health of my patients today, and it's actually impacting my ability to be able to provide care as a physician um, within my healthcare systems. Um, I mean, I think heat is, as you brought up, you know, is probably one of the more tangible um, exposures uh, that we can feel, um, and we had heat waves here in Boston, and in fact, just two months ago, um, I had a patient. Um, he lived in some. Um, housing areas that uh, did not have air conditioning. Um, He was up on the top floor and the ambulance uh, crew members actually said that when they walked in, it was the hottest apartment that they had ever been in. Um, And in fact, when he arrived to our emergency department, I mean, his core temperature was 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So I know we go by Fahrenheit here. So, um, but, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, there are especially vulnerable populations too that are impacted by heat. But I really view that these people are kind of canary in the coal mines in the sense that as, you know, the climate crisis worsens, you know, these impacts are going to affect more and more people. Um, And so it's really on us to to begin to understand what some of these um, impacts are. Mm. And uh, yeah. For for the Brits or the Europeans in the room, that's 105 is a is a, a temperature of 40 Celsius. So this is a significant increase that we've seen in this. Um, it's not just sort of well, that increase in core temperature is obviously going to have a, a, a biological effect. And we've actually got some numbers that you uh, you quote in the analysis about the the effect of heat um, on health. Could you uh, take us through that? Yes, of course. Um, And so, you know, heat is one of those examples where it can really impact every organ system of the body. Um, I mean, so, for example, you know, some of the numbers we talk about is that a one degree Celsius increase is linked to almost a three and a half percent rise in uh, death from heart uh, problems or cardiovascular mortality. Um, In fact, it's also been linked with um, nearly a three and a half percent rise in respiratory mortality. Um, And it's also been associated with death from stroke, um, about one and a half percent rise. Um, And, you know, we think about, too, I mean, that's death, but we think about just bringing people to the doorsteps of hospitals um, and especially to, you know, for example, my emergency department doors, you know, higher temperatures have been linked to a 6% increase in people being hospitalized uh, because of of heart attacks or other issues related to coronary artery disease. Um, And I think, you know, as we think about what um, some of these impacts are, too, that bring people to hospitals, we're not always able to appropriately identify them um, just because, you know, they may be mislabeled um, as affecting other things. Um, and so may actually, you know, the coding um, or the diagnosis may not always directly reflect um, a link to heat, even though heat may have been um, contributing to that. Um, and I think, you know, another thing, too, is actually a paper that came out in the BMJ that really Um, caught my eye, and it was something we talked about here, was just the fact that actually the incidence of diabetes has been increasing um, for every, um, as temperature rises. So for every degree Celsius increase in temperature, it's found that there's been an increase of of 0.3 per thousand people. So 
Obviously, we need more studies to really understand this. Uh, but when you think about the fact that heat may actually be leading to um, the incidence of more disease, um, you know, that's one of those areas where you really start to, um, you know, realize that. And I often describe it that our current understanding of the health burdens um, from climate change is like an iceberg. And I realize the irony um, in that description. You know, we just sort of see what's above the surface. And I think there's a whole burden of disease that um, we are still uh, need to make the associations with. Absolutely. Um, now, one place, Ashish, that there is obviously uh, an increase is, is changing sort of patterns of diseases like malaria, um, where changing weather patterns will will increase mosquito populations in some places and uh, and you say in the in the analysis that that is actually already happening we're, we're we're seeing sort of increase in the the vectors of diseases in some places yeah you know look so we are starting to see i mean zika arrived in the u.s for the first time a couple of years ago um and you know, can I link that directly to climate change? Well, what I can say is that as vectors spread, you're going to start seeing new diseases. Um, in the U.S., we've seen a doubling of vector-borne diseases uh, uh, in the Northeast, and you know, it was a Trump administration report, and uh, so they couldn't quite call it due to climate change. And the CDC scientists said, "Well, it's because of rising temperatures in the climate." <laughs> Wonder what could be causing rising temperatures <laughs> in the climate. Uh, don't know. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of dancing around the most obvious fact, which is that as uh, vectors change, um, we're starting to see diseases in Boston that we saw pretty infrequently in terms of uh, West Nile virus. And, and these are things that are showing up clinically more and more. And um, so I think that the the, I would say five years ago, we were starting to see real changes in the vectors. Uh, in the last five years, we're starting to see changes in disease incidents that would kind of naturally follow those changes in, in vector uh, spread. So this has gone from the theoretical, this could happen, uh, to certainly in the U.S., uh, this is happening. And, and, and obviously, this is not a local phenomenon. We're seeing this across the globe. Mm. Now, the links that, that you talk about there, those are a few disease-specific ones. But then if you think about the impact of climate change um, on things like our ability to produce food, um, on, you know, we've just seen hurricanes devastate uh, the Bahamas and, and things, and the, the the economic impact of that will, yeah. will obviously make a massive difference. So how does one start to kind of unpick those economic um, impacts on on our everyday health. So there are a couple of notions there in your question, Duncan. Uh, one is to understand that climate affects everything, right? This, this is the climate of our planet, and so it will affect literally every single thing that affects our lives, uh, from food supply to uh, to diseases, to the air we breathe. So the effects are really quite substantial, and uh, teasing all of that apart is difficult. And um, I think the key is, in my mind, I sort of think of climate change um, like smoking. Um, when you smoke, your risks of all sorts of bad diseases go way, way up. Um, it's hard to always attribute, like, you know, you can say, hey, people have heart attacks when they don't smoke. It's true. They just their risk of heart attack goes up dramatically. Um, so in the same way, what climate change is doing is dramatically increasing the risk of bad events. Um, and so it, I think in that 
way, it becomes important not to worry so much about, was this storm due to climate change? Um, What we know is that it was probably stronger because of climate change. It was probably worse because of climate change. And then we've got to get to the work of actually addressing climate change um, because it really is showing up in every aspect of our lives. It's hard for me to think of almost anything uh, that is health-related or well-being-related where climate change isn't already beginning to have some effect. Mm. Um, But that effect isn't kind of equally, or that risk isn't equally distributed around the globe. I mean, it's a really useful... uh, kind of scary looking map that you have in the uh, in the paper showing that it it is in a belt around the equator where the the greatest effects um, of this will be felt yeah so this is um, and I really do have to credit Renee for this uh, who really thought of this and I think did a very nice job of putting these two maps together um, there is a map that shows who's at greatest risk again it turns out because we all live on this on one planet that there is nobody who gets to escape uh, the effects, but the effects are never evenly distributed, um, and the and the people who are most vulnerable, not surprisingly, are the people who have fewer resources, who live in areas that already are quite warm, um, already are quite susceptible to communicable and non-communicable diseases, and then when you look at which areas are really challenged in universal health coverage, it's exactly those same places. And so as we encourage those countries and as we try to help countries and, and, and societies move towards universal health coverage, it becomes extremely clear that, that universal health coverage, uh, sorry, that climate change is just going to become this very big barrier that's going to make it that much harder to achieve these goals. Mm. So when we're here, we're, we're talking about kind of increased risks and things and broad things like, you know, increasing cardiovascular mortality and stuff. And it's all quite abstract. So what I'd like to do is is maybe sort of try and focus in and have a little, I don't know, thought experiment perhaps to to try and turn this into to something that people can can understand. Um so if we take, say, India, big country, lots of uh different conditions there, but one which is is kind of enthusiastically um, pursuing universal health coverage at the moment. So um, if we take India uh, as an example, what are the maybe the barriers or the challenges with, with universal health coverage as it stands? Right. So um, depending on which statistic you use, about 20% of Indians have coverage right now. And so in a country of 1.3 billion people, figuring out how to get coverage to an additional about a billion is, is, is very challenging, very expensive. And so the, the, the most ambitious universal health coverage scheme, I would argue, in the world right now is what you know, people affectionately call Modi Care, but it's, it's trying to expand coverage for about 500 million people. Um, and the challenges are, you know, there are many delivery system challenges, kind of classic challenges of UHC, figuring out the financing, figuring out the delivery. Um, but what is happening in India at the same time is with heat waves, with air pollution. And air pollution is really a byproduct of climate change because so much of climate change is driven by the burning of fossil fuels. And so, no, air pollution isn't caused by climate change, but it's caused by the same thing that's causing climate change. And it's made much worse with climate change because air pollution at any level of pollution becomes that much deadlier as temperatures rise. So it's really a synergistic effect. Um, All the models that India has built, the policymakers have built about disease burden, 
uh, who needs what kind of care, what kind of services. Um, none of it has really taken climate change into account. And so one worries that as India embarks on this very ambitious challenge, um, they're going to get a lot of it wrong because the the freight train that is climate change that is coming and about to hit India is not factored into any of the um, any of the far- forecasting models for what needs to be covered under UHC in India. Mm. And obviously, we can't we're not creating a forecasting model here. But say um, in uh, in the paper, you say that um, the capacity for transmission of malaria has cr- increased by twenty percent um, in some areas of Africa. So. Do we have any idea what the kind of the, the potential vector increase in India is? Um, can we sort of think about what that then competent increase in, in malaria would do to the kind of finances of, of UHC? Yeah. So, Renee, I don't know if you've seen any data on this. Um, I have not seen any specific data around malaria uh, and the and the interaction with uh, climate change in India. Renee, have you seen anything specific around that? No, unfortunately, I don't have. I have not seen any specific statistics that I can uh, recall right now. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? It, so, so the fact that we don't actually have that data, right, is <laughs> telling, right? It and part of what we're hoping to spur with this analysis piece is point out that it's clearly going to have an effect. Mm. But until we have the data that says, oh, by the way, it's a ten percent effect or a thirty percent effect or a sixty percent effect, it's going to be very hard for policymakers even to take it into account. Um, so one is we need a whole set of new research on how climate change is going to affect disease burden. And I think that that area of work is very much in its infancy. Um, but if you look at the major burdens of disease in India, malaria is certainly one of them. Tuberculosis is mm-hmm. a huge one. Um, and given the respiratory effects of, of pollution and heat um, and that, I think, makes people much more susceptible uh, to tuberculosis. It makes TB much worse, harder to manage. Um, so there is an interaction there. And then the other thing that you know people from South Asia suffer from at very high rates are diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we've already heard from Renee the, the health effects of uh, temperature rises and air pollution on, uh, on cardiovascular disease. So the the fact that I can't quite point to what the model should be changed to is um, really a failure of our of the academic community to do this work, um, but a reminder that we've got to get going if we're going to get the UHC models right, if we're going to figure out how to cover people and take care of them. Mm. We're not talking that far down the road here, are we? It's not like this is some hundred year long project that we we're trying to figure out. This is this is coming down the road. I would say it's here. I mean, if you think about and you've seen, again, the heat waves that are happening in Europe, the heat waves in India, the air pollution in Mumbai and Delhi. Um, you know, I, every time I go to Delhi and I get out of the airport and I think I, it, I understand why people say it's like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Um, breathing that air is really toxic. And I get to go for short periods of time and then get into a, you know, then get on an airplane and come back home. Most people live there, and every day that's what they're breathing. That's what kids are breathing. So um, this is not something far off in the distance at all. And, um, you know, I think a few of us are starting to do this kind of work. But, boy, is it in its infancy. And you would think that the major funders, the government funders, the the foundations, uh, would make this a very high priority for support over the next five, ten years. Mm. And then we see the – we've talked a little bit about things like – 
the cyclones that were in uh, the Bahamas, and and we had um, incredible monsoon rains in in southern India, causing huge devastation, um, flooding, and, and and things in Kerala. So, you know, those those effects that must really stymie you know that state's ability to to look after the health of health of its population. Yeah. Um, so let me start on this, and then I'd love to hear Renee's kind of reflections on this as well. You know, what's interesting, the data um, says that we, we may not be having more storms because of climate change, um, but the storms are far more severe. And, and it just stands to reason, because storms are fed by warm waters and warm temperatures. And so as waters warm, you're going to see more severe storms. And... Um, so we're certainly seeing that. We saw that in, in, in as you said, in Kerala and in India. Um, the monsoons, on one hand, are a huge relief uh, for the the areas that grow so much, They and they really rely on that. Um, but what's interesting is that um, over the long run, um, these regions have kind of come into a certain level of uh, harmony and balance in terms of how strong the monsoons, how many storms, and, and what that does for... Um, the ability of those regions to kind of grow the food and, and uh, feed its people. And and the perturbation from climate change is really affecting things much, much faster than people are able to adopt. Sorry, people are able to adapt. Um, so adaptation is always a really important part of all these stories. Um, but when things get perturbed very quickly, um, adaptation is much more difficult. Um, and then in the U.S., and, and uh, you know, what we saw last year with uh, Hurricane Maria in, in Puerto Rico, um, what just happened in the Bahamas with Hurricane Dorian, um, these have huge devastating effects right away. But actually, most of the people who die from these storms aren't dying right away. When they survive, it's, it's the devastation on the health system. If you have kidney disease and you're on dialysis, and your hospital and the clinics are all wiped out, you're at massive risk. We now have a, a study that showed that when people got displaced because of storms, um, their cancer therapy got disrupted. Well, that's not a surprise. And their mortality from cancer went up. And that was in the U.S. And so I, you know, these storms have all of these downstream effects that we don't pay attention to. We kind of look at the short-term recovery period. Um, but months and years later, they're still affecting people's lives. I mean, I think as Ashish outlined, I mean, climate change has created a world where we can no longer look in the rearview mirror to understand our future because we're looking at these unprecedented challenges. Um, and we really have to understand, you know, what the future what the future is in order to best um, prepare for it um, and learn how to make our healthcare systems resilient um, and how to protect our especially vulnerable populations. Um, I think, you know, some other things to add are that, you know, we know that Populations are going to be displaced, I mean, especially after um, cyclones and hurricanes, uh, as we've as we've discussed. And we don't really truly understand what these, uh, whether these are internally displaced people within a country. For example, we know with uh, Hur- Hurricane Maria that people were um, uh, displaced to various parts of the U.S. And so now they're arriving in a new city, and they are not established with it with any healthcare system. And so we don't know. Um, exactly how that is impacting the local healthcare systems or how that's necessarily impacting their health. You know, as an example, I mean, I had a woman who showed up um, in my emergency department here in Boston um, from Puerto Rico. Uh, she had a, a bag of medications in a Ziploc um, and the medication bottles were empty and she had nowhere to go. Um, and so I think as we think about these, these individuals who are moving, 
Um, you know, they're going to have different rates of, of conditions. They may actually bring novel conditions that those healthcare workers aren't used to seeing. Um, mental health is obviously a huge um, uh, outcome um, and negative health impact um, for individuals who suffered uh, these, um, these traumatic events. Um, and so, but now these healthcare systems are facing increased patient volumes and they need to provide, you know, culturally sensitive care, you know, and then you think about the reverse of that in the sense that you have healthcare workers are also going to be impacted um, by displacement or migration patterns as a result of, of the climate crisis. And so how do we um, ensure that we have a dynamic, uh, you know, workforce that's available uh, to be able to care for populations at their greatest time of need and to make sure that they have the knowledge and skill sets that are required uh, to know what the, the latest novel diseases are that have emerged in their area, whether that be, um, you know, infectious disease or otherwise. Um, and so, you know, and, the, you know, kind of the last piece that's sort of underpinning all of this is, is rising poverty. And, you know, we know that the climate crisis for a variety of reasons is going to uh, cause increased uh, levels of poverty in, in multiple regions of the world. And so I can think of, you know, nothing worse um, that can uh, threaten both an individual's health in addition to trying to uh, create healthcare systems that um, can provide financially sustainable care uh, to patients um, who are in poverty. So the picture we've sketched of, of India here is, is one where, you know, it's a country still with this challenge to expand um, health coverage to half a billion people. And at the same time, things like infectious disease problems, um, air pollution, everything is, is increasingly stressing that system. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you almost get this this catastrophic shock to it that, that disrupts everything. And now this is coming from... Um, you know, climate change, which is a, a universal problem and not a single country can tackle it or, or protect itself from it. So what does a country like India have to do to start, you know, thinking about universal health coverage and, and climate change together in a way that that is actually helpful and, and helps them achieve their goals? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I think is probably a reality is that universal health coverage will just be much more expensive under a world where um, climate change continues unabated, um, there, that the investments in hospitals and clinics and supply chains are just going to have to be much more substantial, much more resilience built in. Um, and so I think that is just a reality of, of where we are, that we are far enough along uh, on the, the negative effects of climate change. Um, the UHC is going to be more difficult to achieve, and it's just going to be more expensive. Um, one thing that I think India needs to do, and I think India is probably in the right place in terms of it doesn't have that very um, you know, kind of well-developed infrastructure, is as it builds that infrastructure, it, it needs to kind of you know, in the U.S., half the hospitals have their backup generators in the basement. Well, that's a terrible place if you get flooding, right? Um, India needs to build hospitals that doesn't have that, right? Because they need to understand that in a world uh, with climate change, and of course, depending on where you are, um, things like flooding is going to happen more often. So I think uh, India has that opportunity to kind of build it uh, build a system that's much more resilient. Um, but I don't think anybody thinks that that's a 
going to be cheaper than doing it the old way where um, climate change wasn't really a factor. Um, so I, I think that that's a major part of it. Um, it does have to kind of come up with new models for thinking about what the disease burden is it's going to have to tackle. Um, I think India is going to have to do a lot of work in, in thinking about uh, it's already got a healthcare workforce that is not super well trained, uh, has real knowledge deficits. Um, how is it going to deal with a cl- changing climate that's going to stress the healthcare workforce? Um, and what does it do? Uh, what does it do around that? So, uh, I, look, it, it, there are a lot of important challenges here. None of these are insurmountable. Um, they are going to be expensive, but I think um, if Indian health policymakers uh, took these things kind of head on, uh, they could build a UHC system that's really quite resilient and quite effective uh, for the Indian people. Mm. And in the UK, I think we feel. I know in some ways we're protected from this. We already have universal health coverage. Um, but most people don't even think about it. It's just sort of this, this background in their lives. We are in a, a bit of the world that doesn't really, though we have some spikes in temperatures, generally it's not too hot, it's not too cold. Maybe it gets a bit wet sometimes. But, uh, but if you're talking about universal health coverage becoming that much more expensive, do you think it's... It threatens to, to undo coverage in places where, you know, we take it for granted that it's already in place. Yeah. So, I mean, you've even seen in the last five years, right, that the National Health Service has been financially strained by the lack of growth in spending. And that has real effects. I mean, it has effects not just in inconveniences like wait times, but it probably has real effects in your ability to get the services you need in a timely fashion and in a way that helps improve uh, health. And I think the people of the UK have been feeling that. So, um, so any financial stresses to the system uh, are things that people feel quite acutely. And then you take a system that I would say is financially uh, stretched, like the National Health Service, certainly in England, but I think across the UK. Um, and then you throw in new insults. So what are the kinds of insults you might expect from climate change? Um, you know, you are going to have more heat waves. And, and that does mean more people ending up in, in A&E. And it does mean uh, that uh, wait times and, 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 and wait times are not just a convenience thing. We know that mortality goes up as crowding goes up. Um, so I think those are, are, are real. Um, obviously, uh, the UK has been thinking a lot about supply chain recently because of this little thing called Brexit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but whatever happens with Brexit, um, one of the things that we see with climate change is because there are more severe storms, because uh, it puts a stress on supply chains, you see disruptions. And so for a country like the UK, um, where so many of the medicines and food comes from other places, supply chain disruptions are going to have real effects on people's health and, and people's well-being. Um, we saw a massive supply chain problem in the U.S. after Hurricane Maria. Um, IV bags. Uh, these are you know intravenous fluid bags, which we take for granted. As a physician, I just assume I can order up intravenous fluids and people will get it. Half of them were being made in, in Puerto Rico. And those factories got knocked out. And there was a nationwide shortage of IV bags. I, I couldn't believe in Boston. I, at times, I felt like I was practicing in, a, uh, in an underdeveloped country because I couldn't get IV uh, fluids for my patients kind of in the way that I wanted. And, and it was a real challenge. So um, there's every reason to believe that those kinds of effects will show up in, in the U.K., um, I would argue they probably already are, and we may not be noticing it, uh, but it'll become obvious enough soon. And that's a feature of this is the fact that we're not measuring some of the, the these effects of climate change because we can't 
well, code it or, or pull it back in a way that, that makes it exactly. um, really obvious. Uh, and Rennie, um, within uh, your health system up in Boston, you know, are, are you seeing any sort of attempts to mitigate for some of this, to plan for, you know, an increase in people coming from Puerto Rico without any uh, medicines? Or, you know, do you have any, do you see anything going on to, to actually try and mitigate this? I mean, I think, thankfully, we are on an upward swing of recognition about what a significant problem this is and that a climate lens really needs to be added to everything that we do. Um, and we really need these bold, innovative, you know, cross-disciplinary action in order to tackle these, these challenges and make sure we can create a healthier future. And I think that the cross-disciplinary action is really key is, I think, you know, trying to break down some of the sectors that... Um, and lack of communication, I should say, between various sectors and recognizing that you need to get multiple people in a room to think about these complex and, you know, I would argue unprecedented challenges uh, in ways to come up with, you know, solutions um, that may be, you know, currently considered outside of the box. Um, and I think, you know, the other, the other big thing from a healthcare system, at least here in the U.S., that we're really moving towards is recognizing that uh, healthcare is part of the problem. So, you know, within the U.S., um, you know, 10 percent of, of the greenhouse gases uh, that are emitted are from the healthcare sector. And so the healthcare system needs to step forward and acknowledge that part of this treatment is actually getting to the root cause of greenhouse gas emissions. And so in order to do that, we need to switch our healthcare systems, not only make them more resilient to the challenges, but also to make sure they're not contributing to the problem. Um, so switching to renewable energy, and there's definitely been a movement um, to do that. Um, and Ashish and I and, and others are um, obviously, you know, working to try to, um, you know, build momentum around decarbonization, as well as, um, you know, other organizations such as Healthcare Without Harm um, who are doing that. And I think, you know, that really makes that connection and shows that, you know, policy for renewable energy is actually health policy and that you're actually protecting your patients um, in your communities um, by, um, you know, decreasing uh, combustion of fossil fuels and thus, you know, um, uh, limiting the amount of air pollution um, in addition to decreasing a carbon footprint. And I think another big, you know, thing that needs to be stressed is the fact that, you know, as we were talking about the different maps um, around, um, you know, who's most vulnerable is that, you know, there's an ethical issue that's underpinning all of that. And that's the fact that those individuals who are most vulnerable to the health um, burdens from the climate crisis um, and those then that also are struggling the most to have universal health coverage are those that have contributed the least to this problem. Um, and thus, it's really on, you know, us and I you know, even say, you know, us being the U.S. is, um, you know, one of the, the largest contributor um, and, uh, if you look overall from a, a longer time span, and right now I think we, uh, last I saw, were the second highest um, emitters of, from a carbon emission standpoint, you know, we need to, to lead on this um, and recognize that in order to, to protect um, the most vulnerable globally, um, we have to act here at home. Mm. We started off this talking about what was happening in the primaries and the Democratic primaries in the US. And I suppose this brings us background to that and that the people whose job it is to take that step back to think about how the whole system works as opposed to the individual ones are the the politicians and you know we've we've seen them be really forward thinking radical in some ways with you know some green new deal type things some medicare for all type things um 
how can we encourage them to to think about this together and really sort of holistically look at uh, you know human health in in the country? Yeah. So um, you know, I had a chance recently to testify in front of Congress uh, about the health effects of climate change, and one of the points I made um, there were several. Uh, Republicans who who brought up the topic of you know it's expensive or it might be expensive to change from fossil uh, based fuels and fossil based energy to more renewable energies, and I and I try to point out the expense of not doing so. Um, the one of the problems in a society is costs borne by one sector are you know uh, are not accounted for when you are looking at another sector. So um, it turns out in the U.S. And, and this is certainly true in the U.K. and it will be true in every universal health coverage scheme, but it's true right now in the U.S. that we're already paying for climate change and for air pollution because they disproportionately affect kids and the elderly, and our two biggest things that hit government budgets are Medicaid and Medicare, um, covering kids and covering the elderly. And so just connecting those dots, and when the Federal Emergency Management Agency spends tens of billions of dollars after a major storm, we're paying for climate change. And so this idea that this is going to be some big expensive thing to deal with, there will be expenses because every investment is has some expense associated with it. But the cost of not doing this is astronomical, and I don't even mean in lives, I mean in dollars. And it is, in fact, the job of policymakers to connect those dots. And you know, the Green New Deal is uh, is sort of one of those Rorschach tests where, depending on where you come from, you either see this as this terrifying dystopia Mm -hmm. or you see this as like this nirvana. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, um, less about the Green New Deal and more about a a future um, where renewable energies are at the heart of uh, how we produce energy. And and renewable energies have already started getting pretty cost competitive with with fossil fuels, Uh, actually are more cost competitive in many ways. And so this sort of false dichotomy that some people have been peddling that we have to choose between economic growth and, and environmental stewardship uh, is silly. And when you're going to pay the health costs and you're going to pay the societal costs uh, anyway, then the economic argument becomes very one-sided. We've got to shift uh, away from fossil fuels. And the benefits are going to show up in our pocketbooks, but also in our lives. Mm. And and I think that was actually the, the nice point to stop on. That's a, a, a nice tie-up. Um, Renny, is there anything that you'd like to, to add to this? I'd like to just highlight, um, you know, the last point, and that's about, you know, really just trying to, to connect these dots that currently exist. And I think people view, um, you know, climate change and, and USC as separate issues, but they're so intimately interrelated. Um, and we have to, as we think about, again, the bold, innovative solutions that are required, um, we have to think about how these intersect. And, you know, really, it's just adding a climate lens to everything uh, that we do. Um, in order to understand what the future is um, that that we um, we're walking into, um, but again, you know, just to reiterate that it's you know the climate crisis is here, it's now, um, it's impacting our patients, um, it's impacting our ability as physicians to be able uh, to provide clinical practice and for other healthcare practitioners, um, and it's impacting our um, you know ability to achieve um, UHC today, uh, and this is only going to get you know astronomically. Uh, greater as we move forward, because as much as, you know, if I had a magic power and I could, you know, snap my fingers and stop all greenhouse gas emissions today, um, I would obviously do that in a heartbeat. Um, but, you know, given the lifespan of, of greenhouse gases, um, you know, we're going to continue to see accelerated changes. So while we have to work at the root cause, 
um, and mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we really have to learn how to adapt, um, protect our vulnerable populations, and how to make our health systems resilient um, so we can create the future that we all desire. Mm. So move to uh, health and climate in all policies would be uh, useful. Rene Ashish, thank you so much for uh, talking to us on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It was an honor. You've been listening to Rene Salas and Ashish Jha talk about climate change and universal health coverage. The specific article they're talking about, plus all of the other ones in that collection, are now available at bmj.com slash universal hyphen health hyphen coverage. They're all open access, so free to read, and they offer a really comprehensive look at what we need to do to make healthcare to make healthcare available for everyone. That's it for this episode. We'll be back with more research soon, so subscribe if you don't already. We're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or pretty much wherever you listen. So, until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.